welcome to the Boss Ladies Podcast. I'm Olivia Wary, and as a young female working in the industry of technology, I'm constantly struggling to find my voice and overcome challenges thrown my way. I've decided to have conversations with boss ladies in every industry to hear how they do it. Boss Ladies is intended to inspire women and men of all ages to overcome their fears, explore moonshot thinking, speak up for who they are and what they believe in, and move up in their respective industries. Every day we are faced with challenges, so it is my intention to empower you to get the advice you need by interviewing top executives who have been through it all. On today's episode of Boss Ladies, please welcome Christina Stembel. Christina always knew she wanted to start a business that would utilize her creativity, solve a real problem, and have the potential to scale big. She dreamed of the idea for Farm Girl Flowers in 2010, quit her job at Stanford University, and launched from her dining room in San Francisco, which housed the company and her very understanding fiance for two years. She's built Farm Girl from less than 50K in self-funding into a 75-plus person company generating over 23 million in annual revenue. She's not stopping there though. She plans to grow Farm Girl's annual revenue while creating a business you'd want to buy from, sell to, and work for, because she believes it's just the right thing to do. Welcome today, Christina. We're so excited to have you. So Christina, you started a company that generates over 23 million in revenue with only 49,000 in your savings account. I would love for you to tell us the story behind those numbers as that is a major achievement. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me too, Olivia. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I bootstrapped it back in 2010. I had almost $50,000, $49,000 in my account. That was uh, to live on and start a company. So, oh, man. Um, yeah. It was, got really tight at times. You know, I gave myself two years or until I ran out of money. And the, that almost coincided at the same time at about a year and a half. And I, I got down to $411 in, in the account, which was the scariest moment, I would say. That is terrible. Terrifying. Yeah, it was, and I, but it, thankfully I was able to build it back up and keep growing as fast as as we've been able to. We are bootstrapped. We completely bootstrapped the company, and I mean, I say we, the royal we. It was just me in my dining room, um, <laughs> but you know, I've grown it as quickly as we can. Usually fifty to hundred plus percent year over year, but still to this day are bootstrapped and on track to do about low 30s um, this year, probably between 33 and 34 million this year in sales. That's amazing. Can you define for everyone a little bit more about what you mean exactly by bootstrapped? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I probably should talk about that more often because a lot of people don't understand that means that we still to this day have not brought in any outside capital. So that $49,000 of self-investment is all the money we've had outside of just putting our profit margin back into growing the company, which is what we've done. So we haven't had any angel investors or venture capitalists or private equity people give any influx of money into the company to help us grow. That is unbelievable. So what has it been like then? I guess I wouldn't even say raising capital, but you know, being a female founder and trying to start this from the ground up without having outside capital. It has been so tough. We tried to raise capital. Um, I've tried many times. Um, I have a spreadsheet of all the no's that I've received. Um, We're at 101 currently. Um, And now I'm in the seat where I don't want to raise capital. 
I found it to be a huge time suck. And I think we should just really get real about it. As a female-founded company, 100% female-founded company, I have less than a 2% chance of raising capital. And if it's if you don't have a straight tech company that is even... Uh, you know, It's less than 1%. And we're e-commerce, but not a straight tech. We don't have software margins. You know, and it's a perishable product at that. So it's even... It's the hardest type of, of business to start. So... You know, it's been really, really challenging to do it without outside capital, but that's just the way we've needed to do it out of necessity. When I tried in 2014, 15 raise capital, we hadn't yet proven that we could ship product. And so people were very suspect of us being able to, you know, me being able to grow it. And we've proven that out. And then when I tried raise capital this last time, you know, it was our margins weren't big enough or we hadn't de-risked it enough from a margin perspective and also didn't have a team that looked like Silicon Valley team. So basically all that to say, if you have less than a 2% chance of raising capital, it seems a little crazy the amount of emphasis we put into raising money and how much time, you know, I put 30 to 40% of my time into trying to raise, which now I look back on with regret because instead of doing, you know, 34 million this year, could we do have been doing 50 million if I hadn't have spent years of that much of my time trying to do something that I was not successful at. So, you know, I, it, it's been tough. I can go into many, many stories of, of how it's been particularly tough. Not running out of money is I think my biggest achievement and also my biggest fear is running out of money. And so that's really challenging being bootstrapped. That's the biggest challenge of being bootstrapped is, is cash flow management of a high growth perishable product company. I also think we just need to get real about it as women and not spend the time that we don't have doing something that we have a very little chance of doing in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's really interesting because it seems like you like you said you've you've proven that this is now a revenue generating company and you have a model for success. So, it definitely really highlights some of the numbers you've just been explaining of like it is really tough to be a female founder and to raise capital. Yes, it's really challenging. The numbers don't lie, you know? Yeah. They just don't. So, yeah. What do you think men can be doing better? in the venture capital world or just in life in general to be better allies and to help women be more successful in either raising capital or founding a company or both? Yeah, I think I could spend days talking to you about that one. (laughs) Um, uh, I think it just the really obvious one is investing in female owned companies, like really investing in them. You know, people trust people that look like them. And also most of that, those 101, you know, companies that I've pitched to that I received notes from were made up of almost entirely men, mostly white men who don't know my industry and aren't the consumers in which I'm reaching. And I'm, you know, we've proven that we do a really good job reaching those customers. You know, 80% of people that buy flowers are women buying for women. And yet 100% of the new funded flower startups and the old ones of the large scale e-commerce direct-to-consumer ones are 100% owned by men. And all of them have received capital as well. But so I'm pitching to a room full of people who aren't our consumer, who don't understand the value to the business that I'm, you know, that I have, and that I'm trying to convince them to believe in me, a solo female founder that doesn't pattern match what they're looking for. I don't have a tech pedigree. I didn't work at Facebook, Google, Apple, one of those companies. I didn't go to Stanford. I don't have a college degree at all. And then I'm asking them to take a bet on, you know, to place 
a bet on me, basically. And I don't look like anything that they know. And that's a really hard, really a big challenge to overcome. And which is why I haven't been able to do it. I've overcome what very few have done bootstrapped a company from $49,000 to over 30 million, but I haven't been able to overcome the, Hey, believe in me, you know, one with male investors. And, you know, I, I not a quitter. So I tried way longer than I should have and did receive a few offers. I should say none of them were comparable to what our male competitors have gotten in terms of deals. And so I wasn't going to settle and take a deal that was so far below the value of the company that I believed where we should be at um, com- compared to comps of with our competitors. So I think men, to answer your question, the first thing they can do is understand and acknowledge that they're really not investing in female-owned companies for a myriad of reasons, because their consumers are different than them, because they look different than them. They have different backgrounds than than the male CEOs that they're investing in. And do something to change it, to actively invest in people that aren't the people they typically invest in. And, you know, only when they actually do that will we see things change. You know, you know, you can look at it lots of different ways. You know, they also need to hire more female venture capitalists into their firms. You know, we, I still get approached weekly by many, many private equity and venture capital firms. And, you know, especially every time like a new list comes out where we're on the Inc. 5000, you know, list and all these things come out, then we get a, another influx of incoming requested to talk about potential partnerships and investments in us, which always end up with me spending, you know, so many hours, so many hours doing so many reports and things and just to get another no. But when I look up their team pages on their websites, 99% of the people listed are all men, all of them. And if they have a female, it's usually an executive assistant or in the accounting department or finance department. And I don't know how we can expect you know, a room full of 50 year old white guys to understand what they don't buy themselves, you know, filling the rooms with more women. That's where the buying power is in the households, which we know. So maybe filling their, you know, boardrooms and their, their team pages with more women that represent the buying power that's out there for consumers would be a really healthy start as well. And then investing in companies uh, that are founded by women. is a second step. And then, you know, it'd be great for acknowledgement, even just, just just a very simple thing. But instead of saying, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, female or male, it does matter. It absolutely matters, you know, <laughs> and we are a great example of that because we have several competitors in our space that all started after us with strikingly similar businesses. And all of them have received funding, most of them pre-revenue before they even had to prove themselves. And the one difference between them and us, the only difference, let me tell you, because they look very much like the company I created with burlap wrap bouquets delivered by bicycle locally. And, you know, their taglines, their you know, marketing materials, their collateral materials all look very similar to our materials. And the only difference is that they are men and I am not. I, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. I couldn't agree more in the sense that the first step is really for them to hire more women because that, you know, everything sort of evolves after that. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's interesting that sometimes like these venture capital firms will hire one woman and they'll see it as such a huge accomplishment. And it's one of those things where it's like, that's not enough. Like they need to not just hire one woman so they can say they hired one woman, but really make like a movement to 
make it more diverse altogether from all aspects, not just gender, but, you know, race, et cetera, really to make sure. Because at the end of the day, like you say, you know, the consumers aren't always just going to be white men, you know, and, and you want most cases, I mean, you actually look at it, it's women, women, if it's a direct to consumer product company, look who has more buying power. Exactly. And it, it's women. And so in many, many, many industries, totally. most industries that, that, you know, I purchase, you know, from companies, I have to make a concerted effort to buy from companies that are female founded in my own space, like in fashion and in beauty and things like that. But if we have 50% even of the buying power, why are those rooms not full of 50% women? A hundred percent. Because at the end of the day, we know what we like, you know? I do want to step back for a sec, though, and hear a little bit more about how you came up with the idea behind Farm Girl Flowers, because I think it's really awesome. And I do like how you have differentiated yourself, you know, with the burlap wrapping, etc. Thanks. Yeah, I came up with the idea from basically just to kind of step back even before I knew I wanted to start a company, but I didn't know what area I wanted to be in. And that surprises a lot of people. Most people think that because I work in such a creative space that it must have been a a passion project that I just turned into a business. And then I've been like lucky to do what I love. I hear that every single day. Oh, you're so lucky. You got to turn what you love into a business. And it wasn't that way at all. It's quite backwards um, (laughs) that I knew I wanted to start a business and I had no idea what industry, but I worked at Stanford University at the time, which is, yes, ironic since I didn't have a college degree. (laughs) But one of the departments I oversaw was the events department for the law school. And I saw how much money we were spending quite regularly on flowers and decor for the events that we were hosting. And I was very confused on why we were spending that much money. And so I started researching the flower space, mainly in the event side of it, just to find out why it cost what it what it did. And also just couldn't understand like the supply chain aspect and like it costs this much. The flowers already like oftentimes don't look that fresh. Just want to figure out more about the industry. I very quickly shifted from the event to the e-commerce space because early on in my research, I saw these, this data that showed that the e-commerce side of the industry was actually declining. And this was back in 2010. And it was the first industry out of so many industries with so many <laughs> different business ideas where I was like, what? This is declining in 2010? Like I'm now switching from going anywhere and buying anything in person to buying everything <laughs> online as a young consumer. And I don't understand why any industry would be declining right now. And so I thought, you know, it was kind of a, like my Oprah aha moment. I was like, oh my gosh, I might've found the industry that I could actually go in and, and change things and innovate and create a new way of doing business since I had seen it done in so many different industries and to, to like maximum saturation in a lot of industries by 2010, I thought, let me try to do something. And, and as I, you know, researched more and more and found out the reasons why, like why things cost so much, why, you know, what the supply chain was, you know, why were the flowers ugly in my opinion? <laughs> you know, that was the big thing. I was like, you know, every time I send my mom flowers in Indiana, I hate the whole process. The end product looks like it came from a grocery store for $10, in my opinion. And I spent $80. I spent, you know, an hour going through 200 options. I don't want to go through 200 options, you know? You know, I very much was looking at other industries, like In-N-Out Burger was my my kind <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> definitely my model company that I looked at. I was like, you know, they do what they do and they do it really well. And their whole thing is like the opposite of Burger King, where they're like, we'll do it your way, any way you want it and we have way too many menu items and things and so you know i was like in and out burger always has like a half hour wait (laughs) you know (laughs) 
could I take that same model and apply it to flowers and take away the choice for consumers? So they have to trust us to give them the best flowers of that day. And in doing so, it would to, you know, move the one lever that I, I could move was the waste lever. And instead of having 40% waste, which is industry standard, could I keep our waste to under 2% so I could buy higher priced flowers and make them in house, which is also, I had no idea that at the time, but like we're the only flower company that makes our bouquets in house. Everyone else outsources it to bouquet makers that make the grocery store bouquets as well. And at the farm level that also make the grocery store bouquets. And so in order to to make bouquets that women would actually want what I would want as a consumer. I needed to keep the, keep it in house so I could keep the quality where I needed it to be, but I also needed to waste less so I could buy higher priced flowers. And so I thought, you know, I don't know if people will give up the option. Everybody at that time, you know, this was before a lot of the the new direct to consumer companies were out there that had few choices and lots of, you know, industries I kind of mentioned like fashion and beauty and things. Now, a lot of companies are doing less is more, but back in 2010, they weren't really in and out burger was the only one that I could find. I said, you know, let me, let me quit my job, um, my cushy, you know, job that's not going anywhere. Let me take my $49,000 and let me jump and see if it'll work. And I gave myself two years or until I ran out of money, which as I said, kind of coincided a little bit almost, <laughs> um, but didn't thankfully. And right at the two year mark, I also, we got kicked out of, you know, I, I was, doing it out of my apartment at that time, my dining room for the first two years. And my corporate attorney landlord found out that I was running an illegal business from the apartment. Oh, wow. So I uh, kicked out, kicked the business out of the, the apartment. So I moved into the San Francisco flower mart into a small stall there. And then we just kept growing the business. And I say, we, I hired my first team member then in 2012 and a full-time team member, and then just kept growing as fast as we could and, you know, went from doing $56,000 the first year to like 276 the second year to 920 thousand third year. So like just kept growing it as fast as we could, but the numbers are still small. It's not like if we had brought, you know, taken in millions of dollars of outside capital where we could just go, you know, market like crazy and do millions of dollars from the, you know, right off the bat. It was, it was very different. It was bootstrapping a company means you grow slower and, which is scary when you have a lot of competitors, which has been really scary for us. There has been many times where I thought one of these competitors that looks so much like us is it has so much money is just going to like bury us and we're going to be out of business. And thankfully I was so wrong and I encourage <laughs> everyone else that thinks that like, don't lead out of fear because if you keep your eye on the ball and just make sure you have the best product, just make sure you're the best, make sure that you're celebrating your copycats because if they're all copying you, it means you're the best. And that's amazing. And if you are the best, you'll still be okay. Even if you have to grow strategically slower than what you'd like to and what your competitors can do. Yeah. I want to come back to something you said, but before I do, I just have to ask, so what was your backup plan? like what it always is just go get a job and work my way up that's what it always was go get like a minimum wage job or not a minimum you know like a like lower entry level management job and just work my way up like I did at Stanford for seven and a half years wow yeah so I want to go back to one thing you said that I really liked which it seems like you really identified a problem to solve you didn't just come up with the next great idea 
Um, and I actually had a conversation with Dan Storms, not on this podcast, but he's one of the only male or the only male guest I've had on the podcast. We did sort of an allyship episode, but I talked to him a little bit about this because we're both, you know, in the product space. And one thing we've talked about is like, it's not really the next great idea that makes you successful. It's identifying a key problem and then coming up with a solution. And I really like that that's what your business model, you know, has been predicated on is like, you've really found like you were unhappy with the experience of sending flowers and you wanted to improve that. And you thought of the entire process of how you were seeing it as a consumer. And you're like, I can make this better. Like this is a problem. And so I think that's awesome. And it seems like you did a really great job of really smart business management sourcing in-house versus outward, I don't know, outwardly, I guess. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if that's the right way to say it, but I just think it's awesome. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about what it's been like growing your team. You know, you said you made that key hire, I think you said in 2013. And how have you grown since then in a way that's strategic so that you have enough people to support you and what you're doing, but also that you can, you know, not be, be smart about your money? Yeah. Um, growing and managing a team, I have to say, has been one of the most challenging things that I've done. You never hear any CEOs or founders of companies saying that they started their company because they love to manage people, right? <laughs> um, and that's exactly what you do. You become people <laughs> managers in growing and scaling a team. So we are now at 145 team members and growing. We we need to hire 45 more people. We'll be at 200 before the end of the year. It's really hard to hire right now. Wow. <laughs> Especially manufacturing level, you know, team members is really challenging in the most expensive city in the United States, San Francisco. <laughs> so we have many open positions right now. So if anyone's listening and <laughs> looking for a job or knows somebody who is, let us know. Actually, someone um, I interviewed said they got a job, like someone reached out to them from this podcast looking for a job. So maybe it'll help. That's awesome. <laughs> Everyone, please. <laughs> Join the team at farmgirlflowers.com. Email. Um, I'll include the so, hiring link with your episode. Great. <laughs> Thank you. We need to hire a lot of people. So we, first of all, I just want to say like, I have the absolute best team. I'm really, really fortunate and really, really grateful. So my team members will, I mean, they work so hard and they care so much, which in Silicon Valley area. I just, I don't know how I got this lucky given that we pay considerably less and don't have any of the benefits that, um, <laughs> you know, all of the tech counterparts have around here. And, you know, so we, we have a team that genuinely cares and I, I just don't, I don't even know how I got that lucky, but I'm so grateful. And that said, it's, it's also been super challenging. So we've grown, we don't have a team that looks like a Silicon Valley team, which is one of the the biggest hardships to try and raise capital because they want to see that you have this, you know, big C-suite of, you know, people that have worked at those tech companies I just mentioned or similar ones and have, you know, their, you know, business school degree from Stanford and have all of these like really great looking things on paper. And what I have is people that look like me. A lot of them do have college, but they don't have a tech pedigree. They, you know, haven't worked in, you know, a major, you know, role at Facebook or Apple or Uber, or Airbnb or one of those companies. And that's, that's challenging for the raising capital. However, the team I have are the ones that will, ensure we can still grow at 60 or 70% growth year over year while trying to scale a manufacturing facility, which is really challenging. But there's always, you know, we've had times where, 
you know, one of my biggest failings as a leader was in 2016 when we just grew too fast and I didn't put any emphasis into team culture. And it was just literally, if you had a heartbeat, we would hire you on the spot because we could not keep up with, with the demand. (laughs) And, you know, that year we went from 4.2 or 4.4, yeah, 4.4 million to 10.2 million that year. And, and that was with spending like, I think it was around a dollar on marketing on on CAC. Um, (laughs) So it was just like, literally we were doing almost nothing and we were just growing so, so fast and I couldn't keep up and we had to move warehouses with no notice two weeks before mother's day. And, and it was just, it was a perfect storm of things like moving and the growth and, um, some turnover, some key turnover. And it ended up with just a big, huge mess on my hands of a culture that was not there was no intention behind it. And, you know, it was just very much like, Hey, I'm doing the best I can. I'm out there working with them on the floor every day. What more do they want? And that's the wrong attitude completely. And it resulted in just needing to completely almost stop our growth completely and spend six months just fixing what I'd messed up. And so 2017, we slowed down the growth uh, dramatically, um, which is the (laughs) hardest thing to do as a CEO, because you really, it's very ego driven too. like your ego is tied to your growth. Like if you have a, like we did, it was the only year ever that we've done under 50% growth. We did 49 point something in growth that year. And that was horrible for me as a CEO. You know, I was like, whoa, I suck. You know, I'm like, that's horrible. But it was intentional because the first half of that year, I didn't do hardly anything other than work on the culture here and figure out where I went wrong and fixed it. And, you know, hired the right people and did the right things and put in the right programs and communication tools and listened, you know, to our, to our team on what they weren't getting that they needed to feel valuable and, you know, did the things that I needed to do to prepare us to be able to scale again. And then we were able to take off in 2018 again. And so it wouldn't have been possible if I didn't stop things. And so what I've learned from that whole situation was number one, like culture is always a thing. Like it mm-hmm. is, it's never like, cause right now I can say like, we have the best culture we've ever had ever. And that also scares me. I need to walk I'm knocking on some wood right now. Because, <laughs> you know, I need to keep that top of mind because it's really a living, breathing thing, your culture. And it doesn't come from the top. Like some people say it come, everyone is responsible for culture, but it, it is, you know, like I'm leading the team. And so I need to make sure that everybody knows that and everybody has the tools needed to ensure that they are making sure the culture in their respective areas is where it needs to be and catch it if it's not and fix it. So that's, you know, the biggest learning and also just that growth isn't the only thing like this year, again, we slowed down our growth intentionally this year again. And it was because we need to focus on profitability in order to self fund our next step, which is going to be very expensive to open a distribution center ourselves without any outside capital. And so we really needed to focus on profitability and slow down our growth to be able to do that. So that's what we did this year, which was also, again, another like big ego trip for me of being (laughs) like, Oh, we were doing so great. We're, you know, over 70% growth. And now I need to slow it down to 50% in order to be able to save up enough money, which seems counterintuitive, but that's the way it works. So that's been hard, um, but really kind of 
detaching my ego from doing what's right from the company uh, has been also a big challenge and a learning for me. Yeah. I mean, it takes an incredible leader to be able to recognize that there is this big culture issue and then, you know, slow down growth just to address it. So how did you emotionally handle that? And like, what were your strategies for that? It was hard. The culture one was the biggest hit. Basically, you just felt like, you know, because some of it makes sense and some does not, but it doesn't matter if it makes sense. Perception's reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the absence of, of a story, stories are created, right? And so if you're not communicating well with your team members, sometimes out of just like protecting them and not wanting to like share too much or make people worried as a bootstrap company, I'm always worried about money, like mm-hmm. always 100% of the time. And I used to think that I needed to, to shield that from my team and always put up like a very strong front, like, you know, we are fine, we're great, you know, like everything is wonderful. <laughs> and what I've learned, and thanks to Brene Brown as well, who <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, you know, vulnerability is good. And so, you know, sharing that with your team and letting them in to know like, hey, this is what you know, I'm afraid of creating the real story or telling them the real story. So they're not making up stories in their head of what's going on Mm -hmm. because you're changing things. You know, as a high growth startup, you're always changing and adapting and pivoting. And a lot of people aren't great with that, right? Like most CEOs, I know most founders of companies like myself are really good at that because you have to be, or you'd be out of business, right? You have to pivot all the time. And yet you're hiring people that, you know, where change is, is a challenge for them. And so giving them more information I found has been super helpful to letting them, you know, know that you number one, trust them with that information and that they are part of the achievements of the team are not yours. They're your teams, you know? And so, you know, it it doesn't make any sense to hide a bunch of stuff from them and then expect them to feel valuable, you know, valuable contributors to the success of the team. And so, once I got over that and figured that part out and was able to be more vulnerable with my team, it helped tremendously. That's great. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, that you had an, an incredibly ambitious dream and, and you're still sort of seeing it out. What advice do you have for other women out there who have an ambitious dream like yours, who may not be in the in the best position to succeed on paper? You know, they don't have a college degree or they don't have the financial capital they need, but but they want to work hard like you did and and really make something for themselves. That's a really really good question, and I have lots of advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> And some of it's counterintuitive and some of it I think is obvious probably. But first thing I would say that's not obvious and I wish that I had known then uh, what I know now is it, it sounds a little facetious when I say this, but really, really think hard about doing perishability. It's the hardest thing in the world. So when I have people that come to me and want to start like food companies or flower companies, lots of flower companies... If I had known then what I know now, I never would have started Farm Girl. And people kind of gasp when I say that. And I don't mean that like in a, in a bad way. Like I love that it's working and I'm doing it. And like I've been able to like, you know, my first pancake turned out okay, <laughs> you know? Um, so I love that. However, I've spent almost 10 years, it's nine years of my life doing this. And it's hard. It's really, really hard where I often think, man, I, seriously built a manufacturing facility of perishable product in the most expensive city in the United States with the lowest unemployment. 
um, wow. <laughs> market out there. Like that's crazy. And that it's counter, it, it, it's like defies all logic that we've been able to be successful. And so if I had done it with something that could have been, you know, maybe a little bit easier with higher margins and less necessity for perfection. Like if we miss order, we have three days to figure out what to do with that product or we're, we're in trouble. You know, we can't run a sale that can last three months, you yeah. know, like <laughs> it's, you know, we're in a different situation here. So I just say that first because I get a lot of people, a lot of women, especially that want me, want my advice and they come to me with perishable product companies. And if you don't have a lot of money to start, especially like I do not recommend it. Secondly, I think like you have to figure out a way to start a company without capital. And this is, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight the system basically because we should, we should bring all the voices we possibly can to this problem of, the amount of women that receive capital. It's crazy. It's absolutely absurd. And we should be talking about it. But it's going to take a while, right? It's not going to be something that happens overnight. So when I hear even friends of mine that are really putting all of their eggs in the bucket of when we get capital, when we get capital, we'll do this. When we get capital, I'll be able to make this work. If you can't do it without capital, then... And, and you've been doing it for a long time, or if you're even just trying to get started, I, I would highly recommend going for an idea because ideas are cheap. I had literally at least 4,000 <laughs> ideas before Farm Girl. Seriously. And everyone was solving a problem, to your point earlier. They might not have been a problem where if I could get, you know, 5% profit, you know, 5% market, uh, it would be enough to sustain a real company, <laughs> like iron on pockets for your suits or things like that. But everyone solved a real problem I was having. You know, that whole saying ideas are cheap, it's true. It's the ex- execution, right? I mean, you know, think how many people have like done strikingly similar businesses to mine, some of them are not around anymore. You know, it's not the idea, it's the execution and how you execute it. So if you come up with an idea that you need a lot of capital, I'll give an example. I had one called I Soiree before this, and I thought it was a brilliant idea. I still think it's a really good idea. I needed $2 million to launch it. And I didn't have $2 million. I knew I would, it would take me forever to save that much <laughs> when it took me forever to save 49000 And I knew I wouldn't be able to get outside capital. So I didn't want to waste years of my life trying to go get outside capital to even be able to launch this. I'd rather be more pragmatic and realistic and say, let me come up with an idea that I can launch with $49,000. And because I live in San Francisco where there is a robust flower market, I can go buy smaller quantity flowers and I can start this without a huge investment. It's not like I need to go have something made in another country in huge quantities and hold that inventory, you know? So figuring out something that you can do if if your desire is to start a company without putting all of your eggs in the basket of, I'll do it when I get capital. Because that's just... Unless you're tremendously lucky, which some people are, and you're in that 2%, you might find yourself sorely disappointed. And then also know when to call it quits, which is... you know I used to say like my advice would be like, you know, just go for it. It's all about resilience and grit, which it is. It's all about resilience and grit. But then I listened back to some podcasts <laughs> I was on and I didn't like that message because it just makes it seem like you just keep trying forever. And I have some friends right now that have businesses that they've been doing for a very long time, for as long as I've been doing this, which is almost nine years, like I said. And that's a long time to work 120 hours a week every single week for nine years, you know? And so if you're going to give 
a like long, you know, really, really, if you're going to go for it and work as hard as you're going to have to work to start a company, especially bootstrapped, then don't do it forever. If it's not working, if you you're testing the market and if the market doesn't like it, even if it's a brilliant idea, which I find to be the hardest thing for entrepreneurs, because everybody thinks that their idea is brilliant, including myself. So I'm saying <laughs> this with me and, and they're like, my idea is brilliant. All of them are, you know? <laughs> so if you, even if the idea is brilliant, no one's saying the idea is not brilliant. It might just be that the market's not ready for it yet. It might not be the right timing. I mean, look at like Julie Wainwright's, she was the pets.com. Look what happened to pets.com versus Chewy's, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like, you know, it might just not be the right time for your product or your service in the marketplace right then. So don't give 10 or 20 years of your life to something that at the maximum revenue you're doing like a million dollars, you know, and unless you're just really content with just you want a small business and you're able to figure out how to do that with not, you know, um, spending <laughs> 120 hours a week, preferably, you know, I mean, we could be a very, a much smaller regional flower company making a lot more profit than we do. You know, we subsidized this year, it'll be over $2 million in shipping. So if I just didn't do that, didn't subsidize shipping and didn't go east of the Mississippi, we would be doing $2 million in profit right off the bat right there. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I chose not to do that because I wanted a different outcome long-term, but if you want to be a smaller company, that's fine too. But like really not just doing it forever because you believe in the idea so much if the market is telling you not right yeah, now. I think that's really you know? great advice. So my last question for you, although it's it's funny to ask this one because I feel like you've listed so many, but women really don't brag about themselves enough. So I love to end on a positive and just talk about what you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments. My absolute biggest accomplishment is not running out of money. <laughs> it's it's like the truth. It's we've come so close so many times and we've had so many close calls and so many unplanned expenses that almost tank us, like almost tank us. Like there's never even one quarter of the year where I don't have an unplanned expense that's like you know, we just had one that was over a hundred thousand dollars. It's like yeah. wow, you know, <laughs> like and the fact that I'm really proud because I'm not a finance person at all. And I've had to learn how to to know my numbers really, really well. And it's not something I enjoy. I, I hate it. Like I reward myself with carbs or sugar <laughs> after I do something I need to do. It's so unhealthy. Um, so it's just... I'm really proud of the fact that I've gotten to be you know, good with numbers, even though I don't enjoy it and that I haven't run out of money to date. I think that that's a huge accomplishment with growing over 50% every year. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Olivia. This has been so fun talking to you. Check back soon for another episode of Boss Ladies.